4: Check, check, check. Check, chicken, chop, chow, chowder.
5: Chorizo. Chive.
4: Chastity.
5: Mm. Oh,
4: we got to grumble at chastity mm-hmm. from Queen of the Libertines over here. Charity. Charity.
5: Chivalry. Bit different. Chivalry.
4: Chivalry. 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 <laughs> chives.
5: I said chives. Oh, you said chives. Chide.
4: Chide! You chided me for saying chives when you already said chives. Child, wow! Choose your chives cheerfully. <laughs> <laughs> chair, chair. Uh, and that was today's episode about the romance between the letter C and the letter H.
5: <laughs>
4: Truly, H dooby
5: uh, stepping out though.
4: H be stepping out. H H has a thing going out with on with F- like S and, and T. G- G sometimes? Oh, my god. Even though
5: H is a little quiet about that one. Yeah. (laughs) Usually.
4: I mean, I've seen H out with I guess G
5: is usually the quiet one. Uh, Like cough. How about this?
4: How about when P and H go out together? Oh, my God. And nobody even knows it's either of them. Right?
5: Some people might even think it is G.
4: Some people are like, oh, yeah, right? It's like Like,
5: phase and cough. It's the same sound.
4: Hey, did you guys see F last night at the party? No. F? F F wasn't here. I saw G.
5: And I saw H standing nearby G.
4: You saw H near G? You
5: saw H and G together? Yeah, anybody, uh, anybody seen P around here lately? <laughs> oh, you.
4: <laughs> what a, what a world. <laughs> this letterland. We'll spend some more time there.
5: I know, right? I'd go to a party with a bunch of letters. <laughs> That's because I'm very
4: lame. W? H is always oh, stepping true. out with everyone including W you whore.
5: Whore, you whole whore.
4: <laughs> wow, H gets around. H does get
5: around. I never really thought
4: about that before. H. Holy hell, H.
5: H, the whore of the alphabet. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so we figured it out. We tried That's why you that can join us on
5: this podcast. Yes. For these hard-hitting,
4: hard-hitting heart,
5: hard hitting Oh. Hard hitting heart wait. Hard hitting.
4: For these hard hitting histories. Mm hmm. These half truths. Of hearts. Of hearts. <laughs> this hearsay.
5: Hearsay, yes, totally.
4: These uh, horrible headlines.
5: <laughs> Today's episode of Ridiculous Romance <laughs> is brought to you by the letter H, which we've determined is the <laughs> side piece of the alphabet. That's hot. It's hot. Yep. <laughs> hot. <laughs>
4: Well, we appreciate spending some time with H since we've been dealing with C-19 Mm. (laughs) this week with our COVID.
5: Mm
4: -hmm. Uh, Do not recommend. C as in cough.
5: Unsubscribe. (laughs)
4: Unsubscribe. For real. All the extra work I'm going to do to edit out these coughs and sniffs Mm -hmm. because we're climbing out of it. I feel close to better.
5: Yeah, I think i am you yeah.
4: You had your worst day yesterday.
5: Definitely. Yeah, I feel a little better today than yesterday. Yeah. But I'm tired.
4: Yeah. We're gonna perk you up. I'm gonna do the um pulp fiction shot of adrenaline straight into her heart right before we in during the theme song. So Perfect. she's gonna come back. I'll
5: be like, Wow <laughs> Hi! Hey! Uh, yeah, yay! Let's cut out when I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> This is so exciting. We're back for Colette, part three. This has been such a saga. Right? I'm, I'm so into it. Where are we at? What happened?
5: Where are we at? Oh, yeah. Well, when we last left off... Right. We got uh-huh. Colette through like, I guess about like five years of her life, I think, from like 1906 well, to 1912.
4: Five years of her life, not the first five years of her life.
5: No, no, no. That yeah, would be just, a different,
4: very different that would be story. A very
5: different story. Also a boring one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't think she had much to say <laughs> about one through five.
4: Unless she had written all those novels before she was five years old.
5: Holy shit. That'd be
4: incredible.
5: That would be a story. <laughs> like we keep talk about Mozart, but listen, she wrote a whole <laughs> book about being a fifteen-year-old girl at school when she was never even been to school yet. <sighs> no, we had gotten her through about uh, five, six years of her life, which included the kiss that started a riot. Oh yes, um, multiple partners and trysts, many, uh-huh. <laughs> many awesome, sexy adventures. Um, Also started her new career in journalism Until she married her second husband, Henri de Juvenel Uh And they had a daughter But now, war is coming to France And after that, Colette has a sexy young stepson to contend with
0: Uh-oh
5: So, yeah, let's hear about wartime journalism and lavender languages and sexual initiation and so much more.
4: Uh, Yeah, I'm in. Let's go.
5: All right. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. Uh A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in our show Ridiculous.
4: Romance! A production of iHeartRadio.
5: So Henri and Colette married in 1912. And it was like acrimonious right away. They almost split up within a few months. But when they reconciled, Colette got pregnant. You know how that is. That makeup sex. They had their only daughter in 1913. Her name was Belle Gazue, which meant beautiful gazelle. Mm-mm. And that was actually Colette's nickname as a child okay. as well.
4: And just to double back here real quick, Henri de Juvenel uh, was the editor of a newspaper where Colette worked, right? And that's, that's right. sort of how they met. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
5: fell in love. Yeah, kind okay. of like intellectual equals yes. and stuff like that. But neither of them were great parents to Belgazoo, unfortunately. They mm. pretty much abandoned her to nurses and nannies. um not uncommon, uh, I think, for rich parents who could afford to do that sort of thing
4: right.
5: Um, but Colette was like, She really was not interested. She would sometimes let six months pass without ever seeing her daughter. Damn. She thought parenting was a strain on her creativity and freedom. She called her daughter a rat sometimes. Oh. Just not a good parent. She sucked at being a mom. She shouldn't have had a kid. Henri was not a great dad either. He was just really wrapped up in his own self, and neither of them wanted to focus on this kid. But they all lived together in Rosvin. That house in Brittany, France that Missy had gifted to Colette when they broke up.
4: Oh, okay. Um, So she
5: still had that house.
4: um, I can't say I've ever gotten a breakup gift, let alone an entire house in Brittany, France.
5: How many marquees have you (laughs) dated?
4: Not few, but not many. Okay. We'll say that. So that's fair. (laughs) I think the best breakup gift I got was um, being broken up with and not having to be with that person anymore. <laughs> I was about
5: to say, I think the breakup is the gift, usually. All right, but in 1914, the Great War began. Oh, that old thing. It wasn't even called World War I because no one expected there to be a right, sequel. Right, right. It was just the Great War.
4: They didn't do the George Lucas thing where they were like, let me call this... World War Four, so that there's room <laughs> to do some prequels and some sequels later if we
5: right, want. Right, right. Because I got a theme park in mind.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. The worst theme the park. The worst
5: theme park ever.
4: Franz Ferdinand's Freefall. <laughs>
5: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, of course, Henri was almost immediately called to active duty. Healthy man, you know, you're, you're going yeah, to the front. Yeah. Sorry, bro. Um, So, Belle was sent into the country to stay, because it's safer out there. Mm -hmm. And Colette went back to Paris.
4: Now, only a month into the war, the Germans were at the gates of Paris. Mm. And it it was not pretty. Like, a bomb fell on Isabelle de Camuige's garden. You remember her? She was the panther.
5: Henri's old mistress. Mm
4: -hmm. Also, famous writer friends of Colette's were killed. And in mid-October... Colette volunteered as a night nurse at a school that was turned into a hospital. She worked 13-hour shifts from 7 in the evening until 8 in the morning, which were obviously the hours nobody wanted to work. Right. Colette was doing it. According to Judith Thurman's book Secrets of the Flesh, Colette had 8 critically wounded soldiers under her care. Many of them were missing body parts like jaws, teeth, eyes, or whole legs. It's-
5: insane to think about somebody's half their face missing it's horrific bombs and shrapnel were just they fucked you up
4: yeah Judith writes quote when she wasn't changing their bandages making them tea administering anesthetics or tending the hot water furnace she sat with them and talked about her father which if you remember her father had lost his leg in the second Italian war for independence Uh, Judith goes on they wanted to know where he had been amputated higher than me and he could still walk and he married all the same what was his wife like tell us they just wanted to know that there was still a life ahead of them yeah. even if they had their leg amputated cuz that was it's that's terrifying
5: how upsetting i mean again you know and some people are missing half their face like right it, you know, they're definitely, like, life is over.
4: Yeah.
5: Um. But who better to tell them about all the romance that could be awaiting them than yeah. Colette? So I kind of like that idea that That's she great. was sitting there like, oh, my mom was awesome because she did. She was pretty close with her mom. Uh-huh. Um. I think she was a bit of an overbearing mother, but she still was pretty close to her. So she was able to, like, maybe lift their spirits a little bit and give them some hope.
4: You know what I would say, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it just might my, my inclination for the situation is okay you've lost your leg you're gonna find someone you're gonna get married and that person is you've already weeded out all the people who wouldn't marry you because you're you know they consider you a burden or something mm. like that so you've got better chances of finding someone who is going to be so supportive of you and devoted to you so you know chin up there
5: hopefully yeah hopefully, that, that's, hopefully that's, that's things good, work out better that's a good case scenario yeah. I like that. yeah well, after a week of this grueling schedule, Colette was transferred to the day shift. So it got a little simpler, you know, okay. less, life, less this graveyard shift mm-hmm. action. But after two months, she was missing her husband so badly that she decided to travel in secret to join him on the front lines in Verdun. Wow. And she was not the only soldier's wife to do so. But they technically were not allowed to be there, so they basically had to go into hiding. Mm. Like, they called themselves voluntary prisoners sometimes because it was like... Thurman writes, quote, Her months at the front were the happiest in her life, in part, surely, because she had no rivals for Henry's heart, ardor, or gratitude. She kept her shutters closed during the day, exercised, wrote... Painted scrubbed floors and steadied chests, the ultimate proof of love that she could give to her husband Aww.
4: but while in Verdun, Colette also became one of the first women to report from the front lines about the war.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Now, her stories are mostly concerned with, like, the human cost of the war. like the women and children, even the military war dogs were subjects of her articles rather than, like, You know, the big, heavy political implications of of typical word reporting.
5: Yeah, which she might have not been able to write about. Women journalists were not given that kind of assignment um, or were not asked for their opinion about that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Um, So, you know, it might have been her personal preference and it might have been like, well, we don't care to hear your your opinion about how it's going (laughs) Uh (laughs) or whatever.
4: (laughs) But since you're there, could you tell us about the dogs?
5: Yeah, (laughs) tell us about the dogs.
4: (laughs) But maybe because of the everyday stuff she covered, she managed to capture a side of wartime that many other journalists hadn't been able to capture. Mm -hmm. In the book, Her War Story, 20th Century Women Write About War, which is edited by Sarah P. Sheldon, one of Colette's articles from Verdun is published here in full. And... That's great, because otherwise you'd have to read it in French.
5: <laughs> no, I could uh-huh. not find another English one. They were all yeah. in French.
4: Could not brush up my high school French well enough to capture a whole article. No.
5: Je ne comprends pas. <laughs> uh, vraiment.
4: <laughs> in this article, Colette describes getting to the front and asking the Les Marques, family, who's the couple that she's staying with, what's going on. And then mark complained that the upholsterer is selling butter that's actually margarine. The piano merchant has a shipment of sardines for sale. They're charging insane prices for a single vegetable. <laughs> you know, they're just giving all these like, that's not what I asked kind for. Kind of
5: mundane, yeah. everyday things.
4: And Colette kind of loses her temper. And she's like, the war, for God's sake, how's the war going? <laughs> People, obviously. It's
5: a war on! <laughs>
4: And they kind of chuckle. They're like, oh, it's going. Don't worry.
5: Yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> Like, going. there's
4: a war. <laughs> yeah. There's a war? Yeah, it's still happening. Don't you worry about a thing. There is still a war, if yeah. that's what oh, you're yeah. worried about. Colette goes on to say, quote, I deserve that reply. It did not take me a week to realize that here in Verdun, chalk a block full of troops, with the railway its unique supply line, war becomes a habit. The inseparable cataclysm of life, as natural as thunder and rainstorms. But the danger, the real danger, is that one may soon not be able to eat.
5: Mm. You know, the piano merchant. He's a piano merchant. He's right. supposed to be selling pianos, but uh-huh. instead he's dealing in sardines. Uh-huh. The upholsterer is dealing about butter now. Right. They're not doing any of their normal shit. Mm-hmm. Everything has been suspended. In favor of finding and selling food. Yeah, that is the number one. Nobody gives a fuck about a piano. Nobody's yep. buying a piano. They want a leak. You know, they yep. want a piece of bread. And, and they it, don't. That's insane to me because, of course, our global supply chain is so different
4: yeah. now yeah. that
5: it's like kind of impossible to imagine that it's just completely different now. It's impossible to think about not being able to find an egg. You know what I mean? I
4: know, right? Or having to go down to Lowe's to buy margarine,
5: right? Imagine. I mean you go to the Ace Hardware and they're like, what do you want? <laughs> sardines?
4: <laughs> All we got is sardines. We're at the Ace Hardware. We're we... now we're Ace Sardware, as oh. in sardines. <laughs>
5: Ooh, Ace Sardware. <laughs> Friendly neighborhood sardines. <laughs> Sardine supplier.
4: We're a co-op.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Colette goes on to describe bombs falling continually, not causing many casualties. But people complain about their gardens being ruined and their sheds being smashed. Mm-hmm. One lady had to hide from, quote, a veritable hail of shrapnel. But her main complaint was, quote, Just imagine I had to take shelter under the porte cochere of X family and we're not even on speaking terms. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I love this. People are human no matter what's right. going on around them. Right. And it's, we all know about the shrapnel, but... Listen to this! I had to be polite to a family I don't like! Right, <laughs> I know, yeah. I mean,
4: That's the real crime here! Oh my
5: god! <laughs> Feel sorry for me! Amazing. Colette spent about three months in Verdun, and then she spent most of her time moving back and forth from Paris to the front, writing her war reports. In 1915, she escaped to Rome as a journalist for Le Matin, And her next-door neighbor was a writer and fighter pilot named Gabrielle D'Annunzio, who would become one of her lovers. Uh And by 1917, she and Henri de Juvenel returned to Paris. He had a diplomatic mission, and she had written a film adaptation of her book about her time on the stage, The Vagabond, that we talked about in the Uh last episode. Uh Um, That was about to begin filming, and that made her one of the first authors to be involved in the new medium of cinema. (gasps) The pictures... Colette also survived the Spanish flu pandemic, although some of her closest friends died from it. So this is just a super tragic time. People are dying from war. They're dying from disease. It's like some end time shit. Mm. Can't relate.
4: Uh, Right. (laughs) What's that like? Huh? (laughs) But by 1918, the Great War was over and Henri was positioning himself for a political career. He charmed a lot of people by leading this campaign to have an unknown soldier buried at the Arc de Triomphe. Was he the one who got it there? Because mm-hmm. we went and saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went yeah. And saw. He the, led the that team.
5: campaign. It worked. Everybody was like, "Cool, that guy's awesome," and Amazing. it kind of like helped launch him as a national figure.
4: Well, look at that. We've we've seen part of this story.
5: Yay! With our own eyes. Part of it. We might have seen other things. I I imagine we went to some, maybe one of the cafes we went to, Colette had sat at once or twice in her life. Oh,
4: we might have had one of our butts in the same chair as Colette.
5: That butt got around.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, Henri was also an early adopter and a strong supporter of syndicalism, which was a belief that political structures are inherently corrupt and that organized workers through their trade unions should control society.
5: I don't know. That sounds pretty good to me right now. <laughs> Curious idea. In
4: 1919, maybe because of the demands of his new diplomatic and his like political career he's putting together, he made Colette the literary editor of Le Matin, the newspaper where they worked. Right. Even though their relationship was becoming more and more strained over his many infidelities and absences.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Not that Colette isn't getting her own on the side here as True. well, right? Because besides this guy, Denuncio in Italy, some people think that she had an affair with her friend, a Parisian actress named Musidora. And Musidora played Irma Vep in a 10-episode series called Les Vampires. Musidora also co-wrote and co-directed Colette's film adaptation of The Vagabond
5: dora is pretty cool.
4: Missadora is pretty awesome mm-hmm. And in 1928 years after marrying Henri, she would finally meet his son from his first marriage, Bertrand. Mm. But before we get to that, we've got some cool queer history to cover so let's take a quick commercial break. So welcome back to the show, everyone. And in this whole series about Colette, we have just been absolutely dying to talk about why Paris was such a haven for lesbians Mm -hmm. and all like these fascinating ways that LGBTQ people have found to communicate with one another in secrecy. So we saw this information from across the bar and we really loved its vibes. (laughs) So let's take a quick fling with history to learn about lavender languages and gay Paris.
5: Yes. So even before the end of World War One, as we've learned in our two previous Colette episodes, being a lesbian in Paris wasn't that big of a deal. Okay. That's because the French Revolution decriminalized homosexuality in 1791. Wow. Provided people were discreet. Okay. Oh,
4: okay. That old. That, that old song and dance. Saw. Yeah.
5: And after that, the queer scene flourished, especially in the Belle Epoque era of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So, like, we talked about Natalie Clifford Barney, the queen of the lesbians who ran a weekly salon from 1909 until 1972. This is a weekly salon. She's throwing parties every um, week for, like, decades. 60 years.
4: Amazing.
5: They were attended by famous lesbians like Gertrude Stein and her partner Alice Toklas, Theculturetrip.com says, quote, there's not a famous modernist or lesbian, let alone a lesbian modernist, who lived in Paris at that time who did not pass through her doors. Wow. Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas also hosted salons where they launched the careers of painters like Matisse and Picasso. Culture Trip goes on to say, quote, it was the visibility and vivacity with which sapphic desire could be fulfilled in Paris, albeit relative to your position in the pecking order, that made it, as far as lesbians were concerned, the queer capital of Europe, even more so than Berlin. Ooh. Women who had the money and freedom to travel came from the UK, the USA, and across Europe to attend salons such as Barney's and drink and dance in the city's lesbian bars. So, you know, again, check check the privilege. If you had money, you know, if you had a title like we talked about with Missy, it was a bit easier for you to be out and proud than it was for just a regular old poor chambermaid or something.
4: Right, right. Well, and how often has that been true where I
5: mean, you
4: know, if you have the means, mm-hmm. you uh, you are offered a bit more f- freedoms yeah. than uh, than
5: different rules apply. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: Your, your cute things become little cute quirks and eccentricities instead of criminal behavior.
4: Right. Well, and different rules apply and different opportunities are afforded to you. Like you yeah. can actually go to these salons and stuff like that.
5: Right. Exactly. Freedom to travel. Definitely a huge uh-huh. part of that. Um, And after the casualties of World War I, of course, there were so few healthy young men left in Paris that this only got more pronounced in the 20s and 30s. Oh. So it was already a big scene, and then after all these men were killed, um, there were fewer men, more lesbians.
4: (laughs) (laughs) One of these bars was called Le Monocle, Mm -hmm. and it was in the Montmartre neighborhood of Paris, and women would show up wearing full tuxedos Monocles and men's shoes.
5: Mm-hmm. Obviously, great pictures. By the way, <laughs> oh, I'll
4: bet. Oh man, classy. Everybody oh, yeah. out there looking like Diane Keaton.
5: I know, right? Um, <laughs> I always wanted like a really well cut tuxedo. Yeah. I think it would be such a cool, like it's just a hot look.
4: Yeah, no, you'd look great in a tuxedo. Oh, now, of course, who ruined all this? The Nazis.
5: Boo! Boo
4: to the Nazis. They came in, screwed a lot of this up. But later. In 1966, Yves Saint Laurent brought the legacy of Le Monocle to high fashion where he unveiled his women's tuxedo, Le Smoking, on a Paris runway.
5: Because it's smoking hot.
4: Smoking hot. As CultureTrip.com notes, quote, it was at once a radical statement of female empowerment amid the decade's sexual revolution and a nod with all the world watching to the free living, free loving lesbians who first donned the look.
5: And it's so, I mean, definitely look this up and we'll try to share some pictures but it's really cool to see all these women gathered together, and some of them are femmed out; they're wearing beautiful dresses. But most yeah. of them are wearing this full tuxedo monocle look, and they have their hair slicked back right. and everything. And it's just really cool to like see them chilling and looking so awesome. Yeah. Apparently, a lot of them would wear full length blankets down the street, oh, like wow. to like, smuggle themselves yeah. in, kind of, and they would like throw, them throw off. the blanket <laughs> off. <laughs> Ta da! You thought I looked like shit, but actually I look amazing.
4: (laughs) That's some like, uh, what's his name in the Hunger Games? (laughs) Like if you could show up in something that's all rags and then you like do a spin and Mm -hmm. it bursts into flames and then it's this hot tuxedo. (laughs) I wish. I would wear that.
5: I mean. But in most of the gay world, even in the roaring 20s, visibility was just a chance to get beaten up, blackmailed, jailed or killed Mm. because, of course, it's still illegal in most places. Yeah. Um, And so there were a variety of codes that were used to kind of communicate within the queer community who you were. And, like, if you knew the code, you were a safe person to talk to. And if you didn't, great. Now I know you're not safe. Like, Mm -hmm. that was the point of that.
1: Mm
5: -hmm. Um, Lavender was the color most associated with homosexuality. So these codes in slang are called lavender languages. Okay. And sometimes the codes were in the language of flowers very important the language of flowers it's not really a thing anymore right as much as it used to be but like it used to, like if you sent a yellow rose to someone at the wrong time it was like a big insult <laughs> 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 so the language of flowers pretty well known uh women would give each other bouquets of violets to express interest in a romance
4: oh wh- well what do you do if you just if you're like to, to turn that down Ooh. do you like hand oh, oh thank you so much um here, will you hold these for me? I have to just step out for a minute. <gasps> you know, no. Or do you go plant them?
5: You could probably throw them on the or ground. You just throw them in the- and stomp on them.
4: I don't want your arm. Pretty violets. rude. Very rude.
5: I don't know. And that—that's an—that's an interesting one too, because if you didn't know the code and you be right. like, "Oh my god, thank you! Thank what a you nice so bouquet!" Much. Like suddenly the other lady's like, "Great, she's, she's in." in. <laughs> and the, like <laughs> awkward things ensue.
4: Oh man, and then she's following her around. I mean, this is a rom com. Right,
5: the violet. I would. I would totally watch a violet's a movie violet, about okay, violet.
4: Yeah, she gives them to her. Violet she, fems. She, violet fems. <laughs> <laughs> she hands them over. She thinks she accepted them. Mm-hmm. They start palling around. The woman who received the flowers thinks she's got a new best friend. Right. The woman who gave the flowers thinks that this they're in love with each other. <gasps> By the end, they realize that the flowers they loved were the friends they had all along. Oh.
5: <laughs> Uh, <laughs>
4: I don't know. Somebody else should write this. Not I was going to say it'd it'd be, so, not my world.
5: <laughs> it'd be so funny if it got if you got to use some of that um, very flowery language that women and men would use with each other yeah. that now is like confusing. Where they're like, I think they were gay, but they were just like my love. They would just call everyone my love. Oh right, I think that's, right, right, was, right like, yeah. An additional problem where the girls like <laughs> I I think would just just steer my love, right? Uh-huh. That's what girls say. And the other woman's like, oh, she really loves me. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> yeah, this is a misadventure in the making. <laughs> also, Oscar Wilde invited his friends to wear green carnations in their lapels to the premiere of Lady Windermere's Fan. Oh. And according to lgbtculturalheritage.com, that made it a fashion among gay men to kind of signal to one another who they were. So they would just choose a green carnation for their <laughs> buttonhole, and they'd see another green carnation and be like, let me get into that buttonhole, you know what I'm saying? I'm... <laughs>
4: I'm laughing because the idea that that's discreet like <laughs> if I were a green carnation in my lapel it's a secret that I'm gay that Shh. no one will pick up on and I'm like okay look I
5: mean <laughs> again I guess they really like if you knew uh-huh. could you even and but you weren't gay yourself would people even be like oh well you hang out with all the wrong people uh-huh. if you know you know what I mean
4: well if you don't know and you just see it and you're like hey that's a good look Green Carnation Carnation. on my lapel. Then we've got our B-plot of the rom-com. The guy is like, oh, what a nice look. I'm going to wear a green carnation around. And then his friend is like, oh, sir, Mm. I had no idea you had such uh, good fashion sense. He's like, oh, yes, I love a good fashion sense. They're like, well, (laughs) let's go ride horses together. Also on lgbtculturalheritage.com. It says that items of fashion, accessories, or even small tattoos that could easily be covered up were like other ways to sort of subtly advertise your sexuality. I think it's handkerchiefs in your pocket now, right? Oh, yeah. Or maybe yeah. that was the early 2000s. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. That
5: was like there was a code of which color you were yeah. really wearing or something. Yeah. Meant I think what you were was... into.
4: Yeah. Was that more like kink based, I think?
5: I think like one color meant you were you were gay and okay. you were trying to, but then there were other colors that were like, I'm in, I'm a bottom or like I'm into yeah. this type of thing. Or something. I've got a I black don't...
4: and white polka dot handkerchief. That means you can, <laughs> you know, you can tie me up in your dungeon. <laughs> <laughs>
5: And some poor gal with the black and white polka dot, yes, like I thought this was handkerchief. Is like no, I like the style. I keep getting the weirdest messages.
4: <laughs> this is also a rom com that will play through time. We'll have multiple, like it. the hours. It's
5: we'll like have the time multiple timelines going on.
4: <laughs> and so there's somebody in the modern era who's like, I really like the black and white polka dot look. They end up downstairs what? on a St. Andrew's cross.
5: How did this happen? <laughs> this better not awaken anything in me. <laughs> <laughs>
4: And then uh, the conversation.com talks about slang that people would use, like family or a club member or a friend of Dorothy's mm-hmm. or a friend of Mrs. King. There were other ways to sort of carefully out yourself to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, side note, I did look up the friend of Dorothy because I'd heard that before. And I thought that it was a reference to liking Judy Garland. Right. I thought that right. was the initial. She's
5: like a gay icon. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm.
4: There is not um, a precise origin of this phrase that's known, uh, but one belief people has is that it comes from actually a sequel to one of the books of Wizard of Oz called The Road to Oz. Uh, At one point, the book introduces a character called Polychrome, who meets Dorothy and all her friends Mm -hmm. and says to Dorothy, quote, you have some queer friends, Dorothy. And Dorothy replies, the queerness doesn't matter so long as they're friends. Oh, which is a a nice quote, mm-hmm. and B, you could see how that'd be like secret code,
5: right? And polychrome, right there, right? Oh, well, there Isn't you go. That, like a rainbow, like multiple sure. colors.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
5: also, that book did come out in 1909, so it would it would it would uh, definitely match up with our time period yeah.
4: here. And gay people at the time also co-opted the word "gay" from women prostitutes. They were using the word as slang to describe women in their profession.
5: Mm-hmm. And
4: that didn't become synonymous with homosexuality until after the Stonewall riots of 1969.
5: Maybe the most fascinating lavender language that we found is Polari, which was a slang used in the UK. Okay. Like many of these words and codes that were used by the gay community, it had its roots in slang used by marginalized communities, right? Gay was female prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sailors used a lot of this slang back in the day, and oh. then like poor beggars and stuff like that. So it's kind of co opted from already marginalized people, mm-hmm. which makes sense. If you feel marginalized by society, you kind of like, oh, that's my bro right yeah.
1: there.
5: Um, and once. It made its way to the UK. It also borrowed from Cockney rhyming slang and backslang, which is when you pronounce a word as if it's spelled backwards. Oh. Which kind of made me wonder if that's why Missy chose Isim for her artist oh, name because it was Missy Backwards. Yeah. I don't think that was this kind of a sly reference to backslang or the gay slang. Oh, like, maybe to so. Another way of saying, hey, guess what? I'm not straight. So yeah. get the fuck out of here. <laughs>
4: so get the fuck out of here.
5: <laughs> Deal with it. And like all the glasses come down. Uh-huh. <laughs> Now, Polari was particularly useful because to anyone who didn't know it, it just sounded like gibberish, like huh. total gibberish. So it concealed not only your sexuality, but it also allowed you to talk shit about people, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is very important to the gay community.
4: <laughs> At least our friends. Yeah. I know, right.
5: Very important to be able to talk shit. In an article on theconversation.com by Paul Baker called A Brief History of Polari, he shares a phrase. Vada the naf strides on the Omi Ajax. And that means, look at the awful trousers on the man nearby. <laughs> what? Is that what they were saying about me? They were, co- <laughs> they were talking about the, your <laughs> naf strides.
4: Every time I walk by a group of people, I hear vada the naf strides on the Omi Ajax. <laughs>
5: They're always saying that. Only when you're wearing cargo shorts.
4: I would never, first of all. Well, I would you occasionally, would but only like for to. work <laughs> when it was, like, useful.
5: Also, isn't it, like. <laughs> it's
4: been a long time. Right. I don't own any anymore. Thank right. you very much. Just want to get that on the record, on the air.
5: I'd like I don't to clear the my name. not currently own any
4: pairs of cargo shorts or <laughs> pants. There's no cargo happening here.
5: The slander out there about cargo shorts is incorrect. But when I was working
4: on set right, and I needed a lot of pockets, mm-hmm. they were very useful.
5: It's true. They have their purposes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I also love it because you kind of can't say it without having a cockney, like with enough strays on the Omi age, like you really want to have an accent to say right, it. Right, right. <laughs> I
4: love it. <laughs> now, he goes on to say, quote, inserting a Polari word, such as bona, which means good, or polone, which means woman, into a sentence could act as a coded way of identifying other people who might be gay. The language itself, full of camp, irony, innuendo, and sarcasm, also helped its speakers to form a resilient worldview in the face of arrest, blackmail, and physical violence. Mm-hmm. Now, they'd also give themselves names like Scotch Flow or Diamond Lil.
5: Like drag names.
4: What What's yours? What would yours be? Diane
5: DeRuji. <laughs>
4: Diane DeRuji, yeah, Diane DeRuji. What's my... Yeah, what would be your, your cool okay. Polari name?
5: I don't know. Mr. Mister? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Mr. Mister's pretty good. I'd go with, like... Um,
5: I feel like you'd be sweet something because oh, you're a sweet, be sweet boy. Something? So you'd be like sweet something, like sweet.
4: Oh, <laughs> I'd be like. I don't know if I like. I don't know if I want to be sweetie.
5: Sweet Caroline. <laughs> sweet
4: Caroline. I'll go with it.
5: Oh, one of my least favorite songs. <laughs> don't write to me about how it's good. I don't want to hear it. It's a fucking stupid song, and I hate it. I
4: don't think anyone's gonna feel strongly <laughs> enough to write in defending Neil Diamond.
5: Neil Diamond Lil. <laughs> Neil
4: Diamond Lil. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on LGBT dot com, they have this embedded video of a short film, which is entirely in Pilari. It's called putting on the dish. And it's, honestly, it's really worth watching. You've mm-hmm. got to check it out. It, yes. Because it, it really does sound like an alien language. Yeah. Now, Polari fell out of favor once homosexuality was legalized in the UK in the 1960s. But in 2003, a group calling themselves the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence (laughs) translated the Bible into Polari. Now, Paul Baker writes, quote, This was not to mock religion, but to highlight how religious practices are filtered through different cultures and societies, and that despite not always being treated well by mainstream religions, there should still be a space for gay people to engage with religion.
5: True. All true. All true. Yeah. Uh, In 2017, a church actually held a service reading from the Polari-translated Bible. Oh. To commemorate LGBT History Month, and the church actually ended up apologizing for this service. Uh, They said it was led by trainees, the higher-ups hadn't seen the wording, blah, 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 (laughs) all according to the BBC. But it gave us this little gem, quote, Instead of the traditional glory be to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit— The prayer offered was, Fabeness be to the auntie and to the homie chavi and to the fantabulosa fairy.
4: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which, honestly,
5: cooler church. (laughs) I
4: mean, (laughs) definitely would have engaged me more. I
5: would like to praise the fantabulosa fairy. Uh Uh-huh. Paul Baker says that, of course, this reading, quote, provoked a range of conflicting opinions. Some people think it's hilarious. Some are concerned about Church of England rules being broken and disrespect for religious tradition, while others think that God should be prayed to in any language. Yeah. As someone who has spent 20 years documenting the rise and fall of Polari, I find it fascinating that even now it is finding new ways to cause controversy. Never has a dead language had such an interesting afterlife.
4: <laughs> That's great. I think it's so interesting that this church okayed this and then came back and in a very Christian fashion threw the younger people under the bus. (laughs) It was like, oh, that wasn't us. We didn't approve that. (sighs) Their fault. Don't blame me. Uh (laughs) Uh, Wasn't it Christ who said, uh, if you do something people don't like, turn to your neighbor and blame them
5: for it. Throweth thy neighbor under the bus.
4: (laughs) All right, well, that was a bit more of a long fling with history. But, <laughs> hey, when it's good, it's good, hey, right? you
5: know, we couldn't get it
4: Very interesting. We had, to, we had to put that information in somewhere. Oh, this yeah. is a good spot for it. And that, honestly, that's just scratching the surface of lavender languages and gay codes. And while they are very cool to learn about, obviously, also, it kind of sucks that queer people needed a whole fake language to hide themselves behind.
5: Okay, yeah. Right?
4: But... It is time to get back to Colette and her life and her loves. Right after this commercial break,
5: fabness be to the sponsors. <laughs>
6: <laughs> In Homie Chavi's name.
5: <laughs> homie Chavi's name. The
6: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans, and yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
1: Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. And I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you dare. My name is
0: Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you
5: by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. And welcome back to the show, everybody.
4: All right, so back to Colette here. She is the literary editor of Le Matin now. And things are getting rocky with Henri. Writing-wise, Colette was still doing plenty of journalism. She also started writing her book, Cherie. Which she released as a serialized story over a number of weeks. Very common for writers back then.
5: It was. Makes sense, too, because you can sell your journal because everybody wants the next installment. Exactly.
4: Mm -hmm. It's like TV subscriptions now. (laughs) Exactly. Now, Cherie is a novelization of her affair with our favorite department store heir, Auguste Ariot. Yeah. We talked about in part two. His character is kind of an indolent and spoiled young man named Cherie. And he's having an affair with an older courtesan named Leah. And about halfway through the serialization, Colette's book kind of became a little more like reality when she met Henri's son, Bertrand.
5: Bertrand was 16 years old at this time. He's the son of Henri with his first wife, Claire Boas. And even though Colette had been married to Henri for eight years, she had not met his kids, either... Bertrand with Claire or the sunny ad with Isabelle de Comminges. Oh, yeah. Panther. Yeah. Um, but in 1920, Claire sent Bertrand to stay with his dad and Colette as her emissary. Oh, okay. His mission, whether he chose to accept it or not, <laughs> was to get Colette to let Claire use her old married title, Baroness de Juvenel. Okay. Because Claire and Henri were divorced, they're fully divorced, not married. But Claire still used the title all the time because she found it useful in her career as a political lobbyist. Okay. You're if you're, you know, a noble, doors open for you that otherwise would not yeah. open for you, yeah, sure. right? So she's like, this is good. I need to get in with these powerful people. If I'm a baroness, they let me come, let me use yep. this title.
4: I get uh I get Better, I get early check in at all my hotels. <laughs> um, I get a, a you know, a fancy dinner each night,
5: loyalty points, oh, loyalty points, card.
4: <laughs> right? I can go to the front of the line at Disneyland. I
5: mean, wow, it's pretty nice. An aristocracy, man, Pre-
4: well, yes, lots uh, of the benefits. Aristocrats had some perks, you could say,
5: <laughs> but Colette did use the title, okay, and she got very embarrassed and super pissed because she went to check into a hotel. And she was refused a room and regarded with a lot of suspicion as an imposter. What? Because only a few days before, Claire had checked into the hotel oh, using the same title. Sneaky move, So Claire. they were like, no, girl, we know who the Baroness de Juvenel is, and it ain't you. She
4: was just here.
5: Okay, so Colette was like, excuse me, your ex is still using your name. And she was not happy oh my about God. that.
4: She's like, I'm supposed to have the early check-in.
5: <laughs> but this is my fast pass, mine! <laughs>
4: Yeah, she gets to Disneyland and they're like, I'm sorry, ma'am, you cannot go to the front of Splash Mountain because the book says you just did.
5: (laughs) One per customer.
4: (laughs) So Bertrand went to go stay with Colette and try and work this mission out. And he was immediately struck with Colette's undeniable presence.
5: She's a sexy lady.
4: And she liked Bertrand right away, too. Mm. So much so that she decided she should finally meet Claire. Oh, Colette said, quote, in the space of 20 minutes, we established an old friendship.
5: This is interesting how often Colette would be friends with former enemies. Right. Because, like, she became friends with Isabel de Caminjas, uh-huh. like, who tried to murder her. <laughs> like, yeah. she, she, would, she would eventually become friends with most people. Yeah. I think she really was, like, she was willing to overlook a lot of stuff. Right. Eventually.
4: Well, and how, you know, she's just one of those people who's always like, ugh. That wretched woman. Mm-hmm. I cannot stand her. And then spend five minutes with her.
5: Actually, she's very nice. Uh, actually, we have a lovely time. I don't know what I was on about before.
4: <laughs> I do that sometimes. Oh, yeah. I'm just like, this asshole, <laughs> this son of a bitch, I do not want to <laughs> meet this Sweet guy. And then I go meet him and I'm like, oh, you stupid, likable person
5: <laughs> I, <know>. I want to <laughs>
4: spend more time with.
5: <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to suck.
4: <laughs> well, even though Colette and Claire were. Totally digging each other. They seem to be good friends. Claire was still hesitant when Colette later invited Bertrand to spend the summer with her and Henri at Roseven. And Claire only gave in to this when Henri basically insisted. Yeah. But within a few days, even though Henri was like, let my son come with me. We're going to spend some time with my new wife. A few days in, Henri took off. He left the coast to go back to Paris to spend time with his mistress instead. So he's like, never mind. I don't want to spend time with my wife and son. I want to (laughs) go spend time with my mistress with whom I don't have a son currently.
5: (laughs) Hopefully never will.
4: So he left his stepson, Bertrand, and the six-year-old Belle right. with Colette and a couple of her fancy friends.
5: Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe Claire was a little nervous because Colette, you know, she still has her reputation. Uh Uh-huh. She's a sexy lady. She's like kind of wild. She talks about crazy stuff. Everybody's like she's licentious and she does her own thing. So maybe that was, you know, she was kind of like, what's she going to get Bertrand into? Mm -hmm. Now, Colette, you know, very uninterested in her own daughter, as we pointed out already. Uh Uh-huh for some reason decided to get into mothering Bertrand uh, instead. Uh-oh. So she spent her time fattening him up with like rich food and she taught him how to swim. She took him shopping. She talked with him about literature and art and oh, she wow. gave him books to read. Including Cherie, her book about a young man's affair with a much older woman. Oh my
4: goodness! She
5: even inscribed the book to my cherished Bertrand, with the Cherie part of cherished like capitalized. What? So like he?
4: She's like the wink, message wink. Is- <laughs> <laughs> she's, <stay>. she's like <laughs> Bertrand. I have to make you big and strong so that you can carry all these hints that I'm <laughs> dropping on you. <laughs> They are very heavy, if you have not noticed. (laughs) Wow.
5: Well, finally one night she was done with hinting, I guess, and she told him, it's time for you to become a man. She asked him which of the three women who were staying at Rosvin, her or one of her two friends, he preferred to initiate him into the pleasures and mysteries of sex. Wow.
4: He's like, I guess not my stepmom, and picked one of the other two?
5: He did. He picked one of the friends. Uh, They went off together, but it didn't go well. Uh, Don't know what happened. He doesn't get into a lot of detail. He just (laughs) says that he emerged from her room miserable and unsatisfied. Oh. But when he came out the room, what did he see? But Colette, his stepmother, waiting on the landing. And she decided to finish the job.
4: Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, excuse me, but Speculation Station here real Mm -hmm. quick. Mm -hmm. Colette told her two friends if he picks you do a bad job <laughs> don't don't like really just like be very aggressive and nasty and right. like don't don't seduce him
5: laugh at him
4: i want him <laughs> to come out and and look to me for guidance
5: maybe that's
4: i that feels very obvious to me wow i'm laying it down here at speculation station as the cold hard truth
5: all right you know what happens at speculation station we decide we want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bertrand wrote later that it took Quote all of her skills, but she was demanding, voracious, expert, and rewarding. Uh,
4: absolutely. Suspicions confirmed. Mm-hmm. She was waiting for this. She was like, This oh, is no. all a setup.
5: I'm the one to do this. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was hoping he would choose her and like it was too weird for him to do. But yeah. She's like, mm.
4: Yeah, definitely. That's yeah. why she gave her friends the heads up. Right. If he picks you, make it bad.
5: Yeah. Just yeah. don't be sexy. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. They're all like, "Oh, Bertrand, this is the part of sex where I um stick this feather quill straight into your ear, the pointy end." And he's ah! like, "I don't know how I feel about this sex." <laughs> they're like, "That's how it's
5: done." None of my friends ever mentioned this part.
4: <laughs> this is the part where I just flick you in the forehead 10 times in a row. This ow, is no fun. Just whatever they can do. Yeah. You know?
5: Yeah. That would kind of be fun to get creative about being bad at sex. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, oh, my whole point is to turn him off.
4: Uh, fun. B- write to us and tell us how you, would t- <laughs> how you would intentionally make sex bad to try and trick someone to thinking yes. that sex isn't yes. fun. Yes. Yes.
5: Yes. Please. <laughs> well, Colette, you know. She knows what she's doing. Uh, Uh She got him fully initiated. And by the end of summer, he was obsessed with her. He was deeply in love, totally infatuated, hearts all around. Oh,
4: boy. Now, Victoria Best on her blog Lit Love says that it's easy to call Colette a femme fatale who overpowered this young, poor boy's sensibilities, right? right? I mean, that's definitely what it looks like.
5: Yes, it's gross. Mm -hmm.
4: But... Bertrand's friends often said that he liked to make it look like he was being pushed around and forced to do things, when in actuality, he never did anything he didn't want to do.
5: So, yeah, That mean, could be a
4: thing. But that also could be his friends saying, oh, he loves doing that stuff that we always push him around and tell him to do. I know, right? You know, I mean, like,
5: how do you know? That's for kind sure. of
4: a weird self-defensive thing to sort of say.
5: Yeah. I think it would be very strange today to be 47 sleeping with a 16 year old right and people would be cool with it like oh yeah definitely not not okay definitely not not good
4: and i just don't trust his friends here necessarily because it's Mm -hmm. like you know oh they got him to jump off a bridge and he's like didn't want to and they're Mm -hmm. like oh he did want to though you don't understand he always says please no 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 but he means yes. It's basically yeah. what his friends are saying here.
5: I mean, yeah. I could I could kind of see it, though, because you could you could also... There, there are people who are like... Oh, yeah. Do, who do that. Oh. You know, they just want to disclaim all responsibility. Yeah. So they, they say, I don't want it, but they did want it. You know, I mean...
4: I mean, that's me all Again, over, I'm not too. saying disclaimer here. no
5: is yes or anything like that. <laughs> but, you know, they might have had a point, too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, don't if you're 47, don't fuck a 16-year-old. That's, that's really that's all all it comes saying. down
4: to, yeah. Now, Victoria Best also says that even though at the time, Willie, remember Willie, Mm -hmm. Colette's ex-husband, her first husband, the worst Willie, (laughs) made fun of her for gaining weight, saying that she, quote, had an ass like the rear of a stagecoach, which doesn't tempt me to take a ride in it. Which is very rude. Kind of funny, but it's rude. (laughs) But she was still sexy and alluring, even or maybe especially to much younger men.
5: I will throw out that, you know, when you're researching, when I was researching this part of the Uh story, it gets a little gross because not just because of the age difference, but because at this time people are like, but she's so old and dried up and fat, you know, and like Uh how could this young man be so attracted to her? And, you know, a lot of people are like, but she wasn't that old. She's 47. Yeah, not like right. she's in her 50s or a senior citizen. She was still a very alluring, voluptuous, sexy woman. She had this uh-huh. very sensual presence about her right. because she enjoyed sex and everything about sex. She already had this reputation of being this sexy lady, bisexual yeah. lady. I also will say they keep talking about her being fat, but like she weighed up to 180 pounds. <laughs> so, so it's like, I she's mean, my size. Yeah, it's yeah. it's like a little weird to talk about her like she's, you know, a 600 pound woman or something. Right, like, right. She wasn't really so overweight that it was really worth a comment.
4: Right. You know? Right. Well, you know, Homest Amongst Us amongst
5: is amongst
4: us. a weight worthy of a comment, you know? Very and it's true. Just,
5: Extremely true. Uh, and people. Colette herself fell into this trap. She she had a very very narrow definition of beauty. Yeah. So she's she herself was like, I'm old and dried up and fat. And wow. everyone else around her was kind of saying that too. Yeah. So it's a little gross to go through this part because you're especially as a woman you're going, wow, you know, you get a little bit, you get past childbearing age and suddenly you're a dried up old prune, right? Not worthy of any attention. Uh huh. So you Rude. know, just just throwing that out there to say. Plenty of people see why Bertrand was interested. He was like, this is a hot older lady who is going to teach me all the
1: tricks.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, even though he's very attracted to her, her motives are a little less easy to see here. Like the autumn of the year that she seduced Bertrand, she wrote Henri a letter saying, quote, If only you knew how much I love you and how much I've suffered from the fear of losing you this year. You know my desire. I have only one. It has your face and your form and the term of my life. Mm. Just, she's writing that. Uh, P.S. I'm sleeping with your son, but don't worry about that. I only have eyes for you.
5: I know. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I just have I have other things for your son. <laughs> uh,
5: yeah. I... <laughs> your son's the closest I could get to you right now. Uh, yeah,
4: maybe, maybe that's I... it. Maybe that's it. But Henri still stayed away. Like, his letters weren't bringing him home. So maybe, you know, like we said, maybe she needed this ego boost of a younger lover. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was just like a way to stick it to Henri by sleeping with his son. Or maybe, like you said, it's the closest she could get to him was his son. Maybe she just needed somebody to hold.
5: Yeah, she might have just been lonely and feeling old and undesirable. And here comes someone who will make her feel good about herself. Yeah. So that could be it.
4: And how much of that, too... If you're feeling old, if you're someone who's, you know, her existence is kind of defined by uh, desirability Mm -hmm. and sexuality and stuff, and it sort of makes you feel younger. Like, I think oftentimes when older people are attracted to much younger people, they really just want to feel like they're still that age themselves.
5: Sure. Absolutely. That that makes sense. You know, if
4: I date a 20 year old, then aren't I kind of still 20, you know? (laughs)
5: Well, yeah, and it, well, like, sure, and in a way, right? Like, you'd have acquaintances and friends who are younger. Your circle would get a lot younger. So yep. then you're, you know, like, I could see it Definitely. being kind of a feeling of like, I'm giving, giving myself a second youth. Yeah,
4: and then they go up a staircase, and you're like, "Hey, God,
5: I'll be right there, guys. <laughs> you're like, crack crack crack, <laughs> crack, 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 crack. Your knees are just... Oh, no. In concert. <laughs> <laughs> so when Claire... Came to get Bertrand, take him home at the end of the summer. She knew he had been corrupted by his time with Colette. Oh, She's like, yeah. something's different about you. Uh-huh.
4: He's got a swagger now. <laughs> that happened? he did not
5: have before. <laughs> she maybe even guessed that they were having an affair. Mm. She she didn't know exactly what was going on, but she knew that, uh-oh, Colette's maybe a bad influence on my son. Yeah. So for the next 10 months, Claire would urge Henri to get Bertrand work that would take him just as far away as possible from <laughs> Colette. And by 1921, Henri was elected to the Senate, so he had plenty of opportunities for Bertrand, like he would find him internships and stuff. But the next summer, Bertrand would go back to Rosven and spend his time with Colette, and they would resume their affair. The Guardian, in an article titled Femme de siècle, says, quote, She was acting on a principle she would enunciate to a friend. Content yourself, I urge you, with a passing temptation and satisfy it. What more can one be sure of than that which one holds in one's arms? At the moment, one holds it in one's arms. Which we had talked already about Colette's kind of like philosophy of life, which is grab as much experience as you can. All you get is this one life kind of thing. But also like put yourself in the world after a world war, right. which had never happened before. Yeah. All the rules changed. The borders changed. Everything's different. It must have felt very much like the only thing I can believe in and, and have faith in is what's exactly happening right now. And the next moment is not promised to me. Yeah. And I have no idea what it's going to look like. Right.
4: Everything could be different tomorrow. Yeah. 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 Interesting.
5: So I think that's sort of almost a philosophy, like a, a principle a lot of people were feeling at this time. Not mm-hmm. just Colette, but a lot of people were like, uh, what the fuck? I have no idea what's <laughs> happening anymore. Just let me grab a tiny bit of pleasure while I can.
4: Also, can we talk about the use of the pronoun one in some of these so old quotes? Very involved. One is never sure what one's one is going to think about one's other one. And one <laughs> must be one sure of oneself to wonder what one won.
5: One. <laughs> What? Which, I mean, today
4: I was trying to like modernize it. And Mm -hmm. I guess I think you would just say you. What more can you be sure of than that which you hold in your arms? At the moment you hold it it in your arms, which obviously makes more sense to me. But I guess if you're Colette, that would sound like, well, I'm not talking to you. I'm saying one. Trying to make it more
5: general. But like it does, you go back and you're like, some of these sentences are so involved and they're (laughs) incredibly difficult to like get through because right. it's almost like newspaper talk where you're trying to be like a bullet flew out of a gun held by a guy uh-huh. who might have been in the army. <laughs> like, like you're trying so hard not to libel somebody that like you, now you're not making any sense.
4: Thanks for the AP English language homework.
5: <laughs> all right. Let
4: me diagram this you sentence gotta, real like, quick. I I'll gotta, get back to you.
5: I got to pull up my my and white for this.
4: <laughs> so after all this Bertrand started to see Colette more openly, going out with her anytime he was in Paris and even taking a two-week trip to Algeria with her. Mm. Their relationship was still a secret, and Colette tried harder than ever to kind of stop her own signs of aging. She got both a facelift and a perm when they were both brand new procedures.
5: Mm-hmm. Which, some bravery involved there, I think. Oh, to get a yeah. facelift when no one or, had, like...
4: Bravery or desperation. Or
5: desperation. Yeah.
4: Or keen marketing and 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 uh gullibility.
5: Mm-hmm. Or just like how fashion worked. Yeah. You know, if something new, some new fad came out, it was really important to be one of the first yeah. to have it to yeah. try it or do it. There you go. So that might have been enough. I'll also say um a lot of people talk about Sherry a lot because Some people think that it's about Bertrand, Uh um, but of course she had already started writing it before she ever met Bertrand, so it's not really about him. But Leah, Leah, the courtesan in the story, she's like older and she's very, um, she's able to take it. Like, she's kind of like, I I understand that I'm older. It's fine. I can face my aging. There's even a whole passage about her looking in the mirror and seeing her wrinkles and, and, and sagging and whatever else she doesn't like about herself. And she's like, but it's okay. I'm still me and oh, wow. it's all right. Wow. And they're like, it's funny that Colette could write that and not herself do feel
4: it. it. Like like she's writing what she wishes she could she feel. She could
5: feel, exactly. That's and how very she wishes she could handle the situation.
4: Well, and I'll say, it, it always seems to me reading this story like, no, it wasn't about. Bertrand because she hadn't met him yet when she wrote the story but it was a fantasy that she wanted to live Mm -hmm. she wanted to be Leah and be comfortable with herself aging and she wanted to meet a young man who would fall in love with her so when she met Bertrand it was more about him fulfilling this fantasy
5: in a way it was you know
4: so it almost seems like she was kind of looking for the opportunity maybe yeah
5: maybe so he even said that Bertrand said she wanted to live what she had written yeah Now, the only thing that I take exception to is that she had already lived it with August. That's who she was writing the story about. So she had, I I don't know that she, maybe she just wanted to do it again. Yeah. That's fine. But yeah, yeah, I think mainly the main thing is Colette had a really hard time not feeling desirable as a woman and sexy. And as she got older, that got more and more difficult for her.
4: Yeah. She actually also had to undergo a bunch of dental surgery, and she complained, quote, Why can't one simply have all one's teeth pulled and replace them with green jade? Which, uh, that's quite a grill. I just,
5: first of all, (laughs) I just feel that because I need a lot of dental work. And I'm like, yeah, fucking just take them. Just rip them
4: out and give me something else.
5: They're just full of holes. Just take them away. (laughs) Um, But green jade is such a strange choice because green is like the color of rot.
4: Oh, well, yeah, but for teeth, it's more like black, right?
5: I guess, although, remember when we did the episode about uh, Murasaki Shikibu yeah. uh, and the tale of Genshi? We right. talked about how their beauty standards at that time were to charcoal in your teeth. Oh, yeah, that's right. And make them look black. Yeah. So maybe green jade was like a real beautiful color at that time yeah. or something. And it was like, just give me that grill. She just
4: wanted to flash that. she have a full gold
5: and diamond grill if she was alive today.
4: Uh-huh. <laughs> But in 1923, Henri revealed that he had secured Bertrand a job in Prague. And Colette didn't want him to move so far away from her. And in the argument that ensued, the truth about their relationship came out. In one source, it says that Colette begged on her knees for Henri to stay with her. But as Victoria Best writes, quote, "'Despite being in the middle of a heavy affair with a woman to whom he had already promised marriage,' Henri acted like the injured party and wanted a divorce. Classic. So he's off sleeping with somebody else and had said, hey, I'll marry you. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, what, Colette, you're sleeping with my son? <laughs> oh, this breaks my heart. Now I think I might leave you. And you're like, come on. All right. Come on.
5: Now, I I have questions about that because um, maybe... Cause she did have other affairs, so like, did he not know about those affairs, or was he like, "My son's just going too far"? Which yeah, I could kind of relate to that. Yeah, like I could. Yeah, get oh that. for sure. He's for like, sure. I didn't care about Denunzio. I didn't give a fuck about that actress, but my son is off limits, That's girl. Kinda, yeah, you are too old to be fucking with him.
4: Right. Also, like, it's weird to be sleeping with the same person as my son. This is. He's like, I ain't. I ain't uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs>
5: Oh, no, I don't want
4: to be sleeping with the same oh, guy no. as my kid, with the same girl as my kid. Come on, about that, <laughs> she talks in her sleep.
5: <laughs> I'd also love to know this argument and how who how it came out that they were sleeping together. What would right. be the point of saying that? <laughs> Maybe all other options
4: were exhausted. And she was like, she was
5: finally like well, he's keeping me company. Yeah. She must have got real mad and wanted to say something hurtful. Right, right,
4: like, right. Well, he's
5: better in bed than you or something like that. <laughs> and he was like, excuse me, how would you know? And she's like, well, guess what? Turns out.
4: <laughs> he talks in his he sleep. He talks in his
5: sleep. <laughs> But even after helping cause a rift between his father and his stepmother, which did make him uncomfortable, Bertrand decided to move in with Colette. So he was doubling down on this relationship. And seeing them together was, according to the Guardian article, quote, the sport of Paris. Oh. Which nobody liked. Um, They were gossiped about, they were snickered at. Guardian says, quote, only occasionally do Colette's letters betray the effort it took in the months after her separation from Juvenile to conceal her heartbreak and humiliation. Mm. Remember, we learned she likes to save face, so she would never let people see her sweat. Right. But um, she often was very pained by the amount of scandal that she caused. Yeah. She, nobody likes to be the butt of a joke, so she yeah. she was not happy during that time. When Henri's brother Robert died suddenly at forty two, Colette was not welcome at the funeral. That made her really mad. And then she got even more mad when she found out that Henri and Claire had invited a beautiful young girl to the funeral as a provision for Bertrand.
4: Oh my. So by now, Henri is a delegate to the newly formed League of Nations, mm-hmm. and he's a very successful politician. And thanks to him and Claire, Bertrand is neck deep in politics as well. He's organizing a youth congress. He's being invited to speak in the United States, and he's writing articles. His parents knew that they could use all this as leverage to get Bertrand away from Colette for good. So they introduced him to a young heiress, and they set a wedding date for December. On the day of their engagement dinner, Bertrand went to see Colette, and he told her he didn't want to marry this girl. So Colette's like, well, then why go? And Bertrand wrote, Quote, all the same, I decided to go. And I was leaving the garden when from the window, a piece of paper drifted down to me. I love you, it said, which Colette had never told me. And I went back up to her.
5: Hmm. That's pretty dark. That's manipulative. I mean,
4: that, yeah, when someone's leaving and you're like, but I love you.
5: I mm-hmm. never a way said to it before, yeah. which was also a manipulation, probably. Right. Come on now.
4: Right. That's
5: not cool. Uh-uh. Now, Claire persisted, though, even though he broke off this one engagement. She's like, I'm not done with you. Uh-huh. So she sent Bertrand to Cannes for his health, quote unquote, for his health. Right. It was really just to get him away from Colette. Uh-huh. And she had a new young woman all lined up for Bertrand to marry. This time, it was Marcel Pratt, the daughter of a distinguished dramatist.
4: Oh, uh, first of all, only in France. It does an aristocratic family be like, I will have you marry someone of my choosing, a dramatist. <laughs> <No> <laughs> you know, like <laughs> here, that's like who you want to scare your kids away from marrying.
5: <laughs> Don't marry a dramatist. A
4: theater person? No, 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 no. Ugh. Run. Run. <laughs> Run.
5: Far Don't away. Don't you want to
4: marry a lawyer?
5: Now, Claire made all the travel arrangements, so when Bertrand showed up at his hotel in Cannes, who was in the room next door but Marcel? Whoops. So she and Bertrand got engaged. Second time's a charm! Yeah, right? Nope, not if Colette had any say over it. Oh, boy. She also showed up at the hotel with a group of friends, and she asked Bertrand to have dinner with her. Oh, damn. Which he did do. Of course he did. Of course he did. Um, he did not bring a date, but Colette did. It was Maurice Goudicay, a man who was 17 years younger than her. So maybe she is trying to make Bertrand jealous. Uh I can find another one to replace you anytime. Uh And at the end of the night, Colette asked Bertrand to join her in her room at the hotel. And there she's like, are you ready to move back in with me? Let's do this for real. You know, they had this real profound conversation about their future. Mm -hmm. He said he was, quote, ready to spend my life with her. But by the morning... They both agreed it was impossible. You know, light of day, it was like, you're 47 and I'm 16. I guess at this point he's like 20, but still, you know. Also,
4: everyone in our lives is actively trying to make sure we don't end up together. (laughs) Maybe there's a good reason for that.
5: Okay. And at some point, Bertrand, I'm sure, is thinking of like a family life for himself. And that's not, he's not going to have that with Colette. Uh -uh. He can't have children with her. He can't, you know, like, it's just not reasonable. So come on.
4: Plus, if we did have a kid together, he'd be, my son would be my own stepbrother. Oh,
5: true. (laughs) It does get a little involved, doesn't it? Uh Uh-oh. So anyway, they ended up parting ways for good at this point. The Guardian article goes on to say, quote, Bertrand never received the letter, Colette wrote him, that Marcel Pratt intercepted and destroyed. (gasps) Though not before she'd memorized the content, Oh. When she admitted the theft years later, she could still recite Colette's parting words. One would love to know them.
4: Uh, One sure would.
5: Marcel destroyed history, okay? (laughs) I want to know Colette's parting words. They must have been pretty amazing for Marcel to memorize them like that. Oh,
4: Do you think Marcel ever wrote them down somewhere? It sounds like something Carmen Sandiego would steal. (laughs) Like the hidden (laughs) message from Marcel that she wrote down.
5: Right?
1: Oh, man. I also love
5: this idea of Marcel like, constantly with her ear, like her eye out her hotel door, like waiting for a message. She's like, that's from Colette! Give me that! that." And she's like reading it, like crying, weeping about this deep, beautiful, poetic words that Colette wrote about Bertrand. (laughs) (laughs) And then she like sets it on fire.
4: Wow. I will never forget those words.
5: (laughs) I must destroy what I think is so beautiful.
4: (laughs) Now Bertrand, as Joel Van Valen writes on Whistling Shade, went on to write political philosophy, and he also interviewed Hitler in the 1930s. Side note, he was criticized for being too friendly with him. I guess softball questions for Hitler aren't (laughs) too fondly looked upon. And Bertrand is now most famous for his quote, "...a society of sheep must in time beget a government of wolves." And Colette, as Victoria Best writes, quote, had faithfully followed in the footsteps of her heroine, Leah, in that she had taken a young innocent boy and made him into a pampered, cosseted man. And now he had left her for marriage and a bright career while she was alone and alienated from Henri and his family with only the prospect of old age ahead of her. The end of this turbulent period in her life left Colette suffering more acutely than she had ever done before. The question was, what would she do now? And that is the question for us Mm -hmm. as well, isn't it?
5: That's right. But we're going to save that for part four of our Colette series. Yes. I think the final part. Fourth and final part of our Colette series. Until
4: new information comes to light. (laughs) Until we finally find that letter from Marcel.
5: (laughs) Marcel!
4: She's got it hidden somewhere. (sighs) We're going to have to scour France.
5: I mean, seriously though, you can't... A letter... To your boyfriend uh-huh. from his old, much older lover and stepmother uh-huh. that you memorized and kept memorized for years. It must have been such an amazing piece of writing. Uh. And I am furious with her for getting rid of it.
4: <laughs> it's out there somewhere. We're going to f- pull a full like uncharted Nathan Drake <laughs> hunt for this it? letter.
5: On the back of the U.S. Constitution or something. <laughs> she wrote it. Uh, give me a
4: piece of paper to write this down. What was this? Oh, oh. The U.S. Constitution, yeah. You could have that back. <laughs> no one cares about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow.
5: Also interesting about uh, Bertrand being so friendly with Hitler is that his mother, Claire, was a Jewish woman. Um, so he oh, himself okay. was part Jewish. Yeah. Now, of course, early in the 30s, you know, Hitler and his Nazi party had done very little, and they were just a political party right. at that time, so maybe he was friendly, quote-unquote, and they thought it was, like, in retrospect, thought it was too friendly, but at the time, it was a very normal way to talk to that guy. Maybe, I, yeah. It's, I don't know. But,
4: Hard to uh, say. I want to know more about... Maurice Gutiquette, mm. this poor kid who just got brought in as a as a patsy on this date, like <laughs> what's know? his life like like he's just you know walking on the street one day, and this hot older woman grabs him and is like, "You're my date tonight." Like, oh okay, <laughs>
5: okay. sure <laughs> <Duck> her <laughs> goes up and they get totally
4: f- passed off,
5: left right? behind
4: while she invites. This guy up to her room, I mean, tale as old as time if you're brought in as the jealous date, right?
5: Yeah, I guess so. Well, yeah. tale as old as time, you will meet Maurice again because yes. he gets more. He gets more. Don't oh, worry. Man. He's a big part of part four.
4: Teaser, part yeah. four.
5: So don't forget Maurice. He's <sighs> very important.
4: Well, I'm so excited and I can't wait for the for the final yes. question mark part <laughs> of the Colette series <laughs> oh, next yeah. Wednesday. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Yeah. yeah.
5: I hope so. I think this is such a crazy part of her life, mm-hmm. and Colette's just such a complicated, interesting person. There's just no one way to feel about her. Right. So I've I really am enjoying going through her whole life and yeah, having such ups and downs. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs>
4: fascinating well please let us know what you thought you can email us Mm -hmm. redicromance at gmail.com
5: right or we're on twitter and instagram i'm at dynamite boom
4: and i'm at oh great it's eli
5: and the show is at radic romance
4: so let us know your thoughts let us know how you would make sex uncomfortable (laughs) for someone who's never had it before if you want to (laughs) prove to them that it's not fun <laughs> and uh, yeah. while you're at it drop us a review on apple Podcasts.
5: yeah
4: <laughs> and we'll see y'all at the next episode
5: love you bye Bye-bye. so long friends it's time to go thanks for listening to our show tell your friends neighbors uncles and dance to listen to our show ridiculous romance
1: from bbc radio 4 britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip
2: And we're going to be right here along with you fans, covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.